Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. I want to begin today, oh, it is going to be a three-part series entitled The Jesus Traits. These are three traits that Jesus exhibited that were core to his identity and something that we are called upon to uh, carry on as well. Um, Before we get into what's going to be a a series of scriptures, I'm going to ask if you just pray with me one more time. Father, we come before you this morning and we, we want truth in a world that discards this and says that there is no objectivity to this. We seek what is reality and what is truth. You created this world and you are the truth, the way and the life. So guide us, I pray, even in this conversation today, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would would drive these points home into our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to share with you something kind of, um, well, not kind of, very personal for me. Um, Probably almost 28 years ago now, it's been 27 plus years, uh, at the advice of some friends of mine who lived in California, uh, Renee and I had gone out with uh, what at that time was a newborn uh, son, and had gone to San Francisco, but mostly spent our time in Carmel, California, and fell in love with the place. There's, a, there's Ocean Avenue, runs down the center. It's a sleepy little quiet town, um, a lot of visitors on the weekends and stuff, but at the end of the Ocean Avenue, it opens to a place where you can park, and then you walk from there directly onto sand and a bluff that goes down into the ocean, and so it's a beautiful beach area type deal. And as you go down, just off to the right, there's this ancient... Uh, cypress tree. And early on, the first time I was there, I discovered this tree, and, and I found that, it, that I could step up just two or three steps into this tree, and it was perfectly shaped in a way that I could just sit there and, and lay back and watch the ocean. Um, off to my right is Pebble Beach, 18th Green, just gorgeous off in the distance. Off to my left would be Point Lobos, an incredible place of hiking and, and, and some of the most beautiful seaside um, wildland that you're going to find. And over the years then, I've gone back to that place and um, have sat in that tree many times, meditating, thinking, processing different things, praying, reading different books, reading scripture. Uh, I've spent hours in that, in that tree, just soaking. It's just been my, my place there. And um, Renee had take pictures of the boys and I in that tree. And, and over the years, we've taken it at different times and so if you walk into the back door of our home, um, hopefully we're there at the time, if you do that, um, <laughs> then the moment you go out the door, there are five pictures in a frame from five different time periods over 27 years of time of us in that tree. And I was looking at that recently and in preparing for this, and something struck me that I had not noticed that was actually very startling for me. Um, and I'll see if you can understand what that is or see that. Uh, this is the first picture from 27, 20 years. I'm the one on the far right. Uh, and, um, and this is this tree. And if you would orient this way, 
with the town behind you, Pebble Beach is off here, Lobos on the beach goes down, there's, it goes a little while and then goes down about 50 feet or so into the beach area, so this is on a big bluff. And the thing that you should note on this tree is how easy it is to step up into that, uh, that location, that place there. Um, literally, it's just a foot or two up. And this is the tree today. You can see the distance now, you see it. But this is that same tree today, Pell Beach off the far right there. And, and to really illustrate it to you, if you can't catch it fully, is this next slide will show you that's how much sand has eroded from this tree. Where I used to just step up, go back to the first picture real quick if you can do that. You see the step up. Now go back to that last one. So you see three feet plus. I now have to climb into this tree, I, I, you know, with, with hooks and ladders and everything else to get up to the thing. But that's how much, that shocked me when I looked at that recently. Because you see, I've been going there for so long, and it's been happening over time that I didn't notice. I mean, I realized, yeah, I'm getting a little bit more, but you know, I'm only there once a year, or once every two or three years. And, and, and then when I look at this picture, and I realize that three feet of sand has just disappeared. This is the same thing that's happened within our society. If, if you can look and realize that the level of erosion that has happened over a season of time where things have just slowly, these values that were biblical at one time and that were core to our civilization, have just slowly evaporated. We haven't noticed it. It's been kind of like what's referred to as the frog in the kettle. If you put a frog in boiling water, it jumps out. But if you put a frog in water that's, that's room temp and then just slowly, incrementally turn it up, they'll boil to death, that says. In the same way, our society has slowly lost what has been biblical in its baseline and there's this erosion of, of the values, the concepts, the ideas. The message that was given last week has been viewed as courageous or brave. It would not have been. It wouldn't even have to have been mentioned years back because the society as a whole would have understood and would have embraced that. Recently, when I was on vacation, um, for some reason, I don't know why, it just hit me. I, I went back and I haven't played a song I haven't played in years from a band called Petra. It was a Christian rock group, which back in the day was viewed to be an oxymoron. Okay, you couldn't have Christian rock. It was evil and wrong. But, but this was this one song, and I was playing it. It was, I don't know why, it just caught me again. And, and so when I got back from my trip, I'm in my office, and I just started playing a couple of the songs again for some reason. And uh, at one point in time, Laura, our communications director, yells down the hallway, said, yells and says, Randy, the 80s have called. They want their music back, you know, which is her way of saying, shut your door. <laughs> you know? uh, um, and, it, and it hit me when she said that, and I thought, yeah, that's right. This is, I'm playing this. It's kind of connecting in for a moment. You know how certain things can trigger your memory. And so when she said that, it was like, I'm suddenly back in the 80s for a moment. And contrasting that, like I'm in two time zones at one time. And, and the difference between what was held at this time as truth and what is viewed today and how incrementally that has just eroded or changed. Now, some of you can sit here and say, well, you're just walking for the good old days and all. Not necessarily at all. In fact, the two genres, interestingly, I just realized that, I, that I'm really drawn to in reading, in movies, and things of this nature are historical novels, history, things about history, yes, about the past, about all that. But science fiction, the stuff about the future and, and imagination and possibilities, that's also a part of what I enjoy and drive onto. It's not about the past. It's about what is true any longer. 
and, and what has happened to us as a people, both in the world and in the church. And there was a study that was done recently that caught my attention. It's the Cultural Research Center uh, at Arizona Christian University. And George Barna, the um, statistician, um, passed this on. And it said, according to the research, this shocked me. Slightly more than one out of every three pastors of Christian churches possess a biblical worldview. One out of three pastors, the ones who are teaching, the ones who are leading in the issues of faith, possess a biblical worldview. In other words, the adoption of the basic scriptural principles and teachings that form the filter through which we experience, interpret, and respond to the world. That's a biblical worldview, that we come from this position of truth to make sense and understand uh, the world around us, both past, present, and future. And it got worse as I continued to read on. It found that senior pastors are the ones most likely to have a biblical worldview, 41%. But their colleagues, among assistant and associate pastors, 28% have a biblical worldview. Only 13% of teaching pastors, these are the ones that are teaching, and only 13%, I'm sorry, there's a tone of aggrievement that's coming through, you're hearing? 13% of teaching pastors. So what are they teaching? If not biblical truth, it becomes entertainment. It becomes therapy. It becomes so many other things, but not biblical truth. It goes on and says only 4% of executive pastors. These guys are just pagans. Okay, executive pastors. Their job mostly a lot of times is to run, run systems and structures. And so a lot of times they're, they're tapped into for their managerial skills, but not necessarily for their sustaining of biblical truth. And this one was really disturbing. Only 12% of children and youth pastors have a biblical worldview. These are the ones that are teaching your children. The study went on to break down different things. I won't bore you with all of it. But one of the things it said is for uh, an interesting note was that pastors that are in churches of, of less than 250 are nearly three times more likely than the pastors of larger congregations to have a biblical worldview while 42% of the pastors of smaller congregations under 250 have a biblical worldview, only 15% of those serving in larger churches do. And so there seems to be a trend that the larger the church gets, now that's not to say I know many large churches that have a deep biblical worldview, but the tendency is that the larger that gets, the less biblical the view, and the more it goes into some other categories, but not offering biblical truth. Now, I want to assure you, though, we're not a small church, we're not a really large church, but some people view us as large we are steeply committed to biblical truth. I want to tell you that every single staff member, we give them monthly polygraphs. No, we don't do that. (laughs) They're quarterly polygraphs. Uh, No, No, but I I have assurance because of the relationship that we're in and the things that we discuss around the table that our staff is committed to that, that our elders are committed to that, that our trustees, those who handle our finances are committed to these things. So where does that place us as a, as a people and, and as a group here, as, as, as a church as well? This whole concept of the Bible as truth, as objective truth, 
has come under fire in our country more than ever before. If you were watching in Portland or in Seattle, then you would have found at times the protesters of a year or two ago were burning Bibles along with other symbols of authority. Now, I understand they had issues with the police or issues with the civil authority or some, some party politically, whatever else. Why are they burning the Bible, though? Because it also represents authority and it represents truth. And we rebel against authority and against truth. And when we hate those things, we want to destroy those things. There was a woman I saw recently on a, on a uh, video that went viral. She's a news person or opinion person for um, a certain show. And she was just out there, adamant and angry. Says, I don't, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in the Bible. Don't tell me chapter and verse about your Bible. I don't care about your mythological. And she's just angrily denouncing and attacking the idea of faith having any role whatsoever in the public realm. I came across this within this own church. 30-some years ago as a youth pastor in this church when I had to address one of the ministries that had kind of gone off the reservation in the youth area a bit and was trying to draw them back in alignment with things. And, and as I was sitting down with them and having the conversation with them at one point in time to try to resolve our differences, I pointed to a passage of Scripture. And I'll never forget the leader of the ministry going, oh, don't bring the Bible into this. <laughs> and I'm like, excuse me? We are a church. We are in a church and we're dealing with, this is our... I didn't, honestly, I was just like, and that was decades ago. And so today, we find this erosion, and while I still think that the Bible holds true in the midst of that, in the same way that the tree that I have there continues to stand, everything around it is changing increasingly. Now, one of the things that's happened also is that uh, with this is because of the biblical illiteracy and the erosion of these values is the perspective and understanding of Jesus has radically changed. And Jesus has now become a little plaything for whichever side wants to grab hold of him and twist it around. It no longer is linked to the scripture in any way, certainly not to a literate understanding of the scripture. So Jesus is against immigration, he's for immigration, he's pro-abortion, he's anti-abortion, he's Republican, he's Democrat, he's whatever way, and they twist him like Gumby to fit some kind of an agenda and then support it because this is what Jesus said, or this is what Jesus didn't say. One thing that's not understood, though, is that Jesus was deeply committed to Scripture. He quotes Scripture a lot. One well-known pastor of a a large church said in this last year or so that that we should detach ourselves as Christians from the Old Testament Um, because the New Testament's what matters and Jesus is what matters. But Jesus was rooted in the Old Testament. Now, there are things that people try to confuse you with sometimes, and they'll say, well, so do you still believe in, in not mixing your fibers or your, your kosher with your milk and your all that? And they're, they're ignorant again. Don't be ignorant. There were three primary codes in the Old Testament. One was a, 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 a uh, civil code. It was for only Israel, really, and how they were supposed to live as a nation. It's like having American laws. It didn't apply to everyone else in the world. It just applied to us as Americans. We pay American taxes, not other taxes. Then there was something called the ceremonial code. This was a way of operating the temple. It wasn't just for uh, certain people. It was for just a certain time as the temple's existence. But then there was a third thing in the Old Testament called the moral code. And the moral code was for all people for all time. Now, those other codes passed along. The whole thing that people want to mess with you at times now, so you should stone them or you should... No, that was a civil code for Israel only. That was a ceremonial code for the temple. But the moral code... So is it okay to kill people or should we still say thou shalt not kill? 
Is it okay to lie and, and to bear false witness? Or should we say, no, we're, we're not going to do that, or adultery, or the other issues that were involved? And it's not just the Ten Commandments. There's a moral code woven throughout the entire Old Testament. So don't let someone fool you next time with that kind of an argument or that kind of discussion. It's an ignorant argument, and they're operating from ignorance or from willful disobedience. Jesus quoted the Old Testament. He quoted a lot, and you can see some of the passages. We can just roll through some of these, but these are just a few, actually a small sampling of the various scriptures that Jesus would have directly quoted in his ministry throughout the time he was operating. Now, as the list goes on, it's going to shift in a minute of time, and you're going to see scriptures that he didn't directly quote, but he referenced biblical events or biblical concepts that were rooted in the Old Testament. You're going to see that come into play in just a moment of time. And this, is, again, is just a small sampling of what Jesus would have used and would have talked about and would have used as instruction. And so he was soaked in the scripture, and so should we. And I want, you, I want to walk you just quickly through a few of those here this morning. And I'm going to begin, uh, that just continues to unwind here a bit. I want to begin here um, with Jesus is, is been baptized. And it was done to show and to be an example to us, but also to reveal a little bit uh, to the world at the time. He goes right from that, and before beginning his ministry, he goes off into the desert to be alone with God. If you're ever going to pick up some major endeavor for God, it's a good idea to get away for a bit. Um, not in isolation, but in solitude. So not something that takes away from you, but, but something that takes you to God. And so he does this. And we find in Matthew chapter 4, and Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, here's the deal, guys. I, when I get wired up on this, I tend to talk very fast. And I apologize for those of us who English is not your primary language. We'll try and get subtitles for you later, okay? But for the rest of you, stay up, all right? So Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And so we find in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written. He doesn't say, Oh, get off my back, Satan, or Oh, let's have a discussion and argument about why I shouldn't do this and stuff. He references Scripture right out of the bat. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, referencing the Israelites in the, in the desert when God fed them manna, but saying you don't survive on bread alone. You're dependent upon me. Jesus quotes this. To Satan. Okay, so interesting the twist that happens next. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, uh, throw yourself down. For it is written... See, Satan starts to quote scripture. Satan knows scripture, so you better. Just as a thought. Now he misapplies it. But he's like, you want to play that game? Okay, fine. So it's written, uh, he'll command his angels. He quotes Psalm 91. Um, concerning you, and they'll lift you up in their hands that you'll not strike your foot against a stone, if that would be what you want. And Jesus answered in verse 7, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And what he's quoting there is, and again, an event of the children of Israel in Exodus 17, 
where they were thirsty and they beg Moses for water and they complain and say, really, you know, we're not, does God hear with us or not? Are you real or not? And they test God in a certain way. God provides for them, but they were told, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't be testing in that fashion. And so he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.16 as they're looking back on that event and, and God's saying, don't put, Moses is saying, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. Now, it's interesting, at the end of that passage in Exodus, the people are basically saying, we're testing to see is the Lord with us or not. They weren't supposed to test. They should have had faith in that moment. But here it is. Jesus, God in the flesh, is there amongst them and as Satan's tempting them. So it goes on further. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. These three temptations address three specific things. The first one was a temptation by, by Satan to have Christ use his gifts for selfish means. It was to divert his focus and his gifts could be used for himself and not for others. The second one was to change his humbleness and the humility of what he was doing into an attention-seeking, performance, flashy type of thing. See me, see me. And to have that kind of thing come into play with lifting him up and having him play these kind of dramatic uh, um, uh, magic-type tricks. The third thing that we're dealing with here has to do with him saying, look, exchange the sacrifice that you're about to make for all these people. Bow down, serve me. You can have everything earthly, all the pleasures, everything now. And it was an attempt again to divert him from that. Bow down and worship me. And Jesus' response to that in verse 10 says, Away from me, Satan, for it is written. He again goes to scripture for the third time. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Fear the Lord your God, or respect him, or worship him. Have regard for the Lord your God. Serve him only. Take your oaths in his name. Three times Satan comes at him, and three times Jesus goes to the mat biblically, scripturally to address. When you are attacked in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit, don't try to argue with the enemy. Know scripture, read it, seek it and hide it in your heart so that you can respond in those moments or look up a passage and focus on that. Draw that. Let that be the thing that guides and strengthens you. Now with that finished, Satan leaves him, the angels come and attend him, and then the next step is he begins ministry. He starts in his hometown, and it's Sunday morning, actually Saturday, because it would have been the synagogue time and the Jewish time, and the custom of that time was that there'd be a scripture would be read out. And either it was his turn to do that, or he seizes the moment one way or the other. He takes the scroll from Isaiah chapter 61, and he stands up, and he begins to read out. And so he begins his ministry with this passage in Luke chapter 418. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, remember that, and recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free. Now when he reads that, He stops, and we'll come back to that in a moment of time. He stops at a certain point, and that's kind of an important issue. We'll test that in just a second of time. So that's how he begins his ministry. Now, as you saw up there, there are literally dozens and dozens and dozens or hundreds of scriptures that he's referenced. And we're going to cover every single one of those this morning. (laughs) So if you're on live stream, we'll be finishing around 3 p.m., okay? No, we're we're not going to. We're going to jump through that. I wanted you to get that as as a starting point. 
And then I want to take you to a point in his ministry that's pivotal, and then come to the back end here. So we're going to walk this as quickly through as we can do that, okay? So what takes place is this. Um, at one point in time, John the Baptist, who is a cousin to Jesus, and he's the one we mentioned last week, he's in Elizabeth's womb when Mary comes with Jesus in her womb, and, and John jumps for joy inside the womb. You know, there's something crazy going on here. He later becomes this incredibly prophetic figure. He's this wild man. He's coming out of the desert. He's bold. He's direct. He's Old Testament to the max. Repent! And, and, and be saved. And he, he gets intense into this whole thing. And he's so intense in his moralizing and in his preaching that at one point in time, um, he comes to the attention of Herod, the king of the area there, and he gets into some politics a bit and says, you know, you shouldn't have taken your brother's wife as your wife, and that was wrong. And Herod hears that and says, you know what, you don't criticize the king. And so he takes John, he throws him in prison. Now, we know where he was in prison, not through scripture, but because there's extra biblical sources that tell us that, that uh, uh, Josephus, in this one book uh, of the time period, tells us that it was in Macris, a, a prison that, was, that uh, um, uh, Herod had created. And one step back for a moment. There are, there are no very limited scholars anymore, almost 100% agreement that Jesus was an historical figure that walked the earth. Almost every scholar, Christian or not, recognizes there's too much data, biblical but also extra biblical, that Jesus walked the earth, that he existed, that he was a person. So John gets thrown in prison. And we know the story that happens again because of of uh, some other sources here. and Salome, the daughter, does a dance and Herod thinks it's a great dance and says, hey, whatever you want. And she goes back to mom and says, what do you think I should ask for? And mom says, why don't you ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter? Because he's been dissing me on social media all over. He's been a real pain in my butt. So Salome goes back and Herod doesn't want to do it. He knows there's political fallout. But he cuts off John's head and kills him. Now before this happens, John sends his disciples to Jesus. And in going to them, in Matthew chapter 11, he says, should we be looking for another Messiah? Because the expectation was the king was going to set everything right. And, and if the king's going to take control, including on the political scene, then what, what am I doing here in prison? So there's a question. Was he questioning Jesus? Or was he sending his disciples to hear from Jesus, to be affirmed and follow Jesus? There's questions on both of those. But let's just take it for what it is. So Jesus responds to this. And he replies in chapter 11, verse 4. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. If you were paying attention earlier, you'll find that several of these passages about the blind receiving sight, good news proclaimed to the poor, that's part of the Isaiah passage. So what he says is go back and say, the prophecy, the, 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 the messianic stuff, I'm doing that. But if you're really paying close attention, you realize that there's one thing he doesn't say. Remember how he said that there was a passage in that portion where he says, okay, um, you know, the blind are going to receive sight and all this, but he also says he's going to free the prisoners. And Jesus leaves that part off. Little message to John. Yeah, I'm the Messiah. I'm doing the messianic stuff. But not all of it, not right now. And yeah, you're a prisoner and you're not going to get set free. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. It was a coded message to John. 
but it's also a statement of who he was. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on then and does what some people view as the eulogy for John. Even though John's still alive at this time, Jesus knows what's going to happen. So in verse 7, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? That's a question I ask of you today. And I've asked this over the years. What do you come to church for? Why do you, especially on live stream, you should be in church. You really should be in church. I don't know which camera, but you should be in church. Some of you can't be. I understand that. Some of you are traveling. I understand that. Some of you are just lazy. You need to get into church. Okay. You can edit that part. The nice thing about live stream, guys, is you can just zip right past that next time, okay? So. When he's addressing here, what did you come to church? What did you come to see? Do we come to have social and relationships? Nothing wrong with that. That's good. We should have those. They encourage us. Do we come to feel good about ourselves? Some of that's good, but some of it we should feel bad about ourselves if we're doing bad things. We should feel convicted. Um, do we come for therapy? Do we come? All these different reasons can be in place. Or do we come to encounter God? Do we come to, to walk away with some deeper understanding of faith and of truth and of our lives than when we first entered in? Jesus is challenging. He says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Why did you go to John's, John's uh, services? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? He punches it. A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes were in king's palaces or in their, and the other one's in the, in the basement about to get killed. Then what did you go out to see? He says, a prophet. That's what you saw. I tell you more than a prophet. The voice piece of God, you went to encounter God through the voice of this prophet. And then Jesus can't stop himself. He quotes scripture. I will send my messenger ahead of you. And watch closely, ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And what's he quoting? He's quoting Malachi, the prophet, chapter 3, verse 1, who God's speaking, watch closely, nothing up the sleeves, but just watch closely. Malachi, chapter 3, I will send, God speaking, I will send my messenger, that's John, who will prepare the way before me, God says. But what did Jesus quote us? I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. Do you follow that? Jesus is sitting here and personalizing that and saying that God was talking about him, saying, I will send my messenger before you, my son. I'll prepare the way before you, my son. You, God, in the person of Jesus Christ, is the one who's speaking in Malachi about me, him. But Jesus is personalizing. He's saying he's God in the clearest way you could possibly have. And that John is this voice crying in the wilderness. John's the one who goes before. John's the end of the Old Testament, and Jesus is the beginning of the new. Okay, let's continue. Two thoughts here, real quick. First, uh, there's, there's two passages of Scripture here, and um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take them out of sequence for you um, and see if I can do this right. Um, there's a passage that when he finishes everything, um, he says in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, he calls out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last. And you think, oh, that's just a statement. It's a quote from Psalm 31. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. He's quoting Psalms. Why is he quoting Psalms? 
Well, for the same reason as to what happens in Matthew chapter 27. And again, if you don't know scripture, you misunderstand what's going on here. After three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama samachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some people look at that, they're ignorant, say, oh, Jesus really had doubts at the last minute. Oh, he wasn't God. Oh, he was there. There was something else going. No, he's quoting scripture. Christians do that when they're stressed. They do that when they're in difficult times. When the hard things are coming, we quote scripture to find comfort or to clarify a situation or to speak to a situation. And he's doing the same, but in an incredibly powerful way. This is Psalm 22. And you're all saying, who cares? Listen, it's Psalm 22. He starts it off. The beginning of Psalm 22 reads like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what Jesus is quoting. That's the only part he quotes. But Psalm 22 is the most messianic, prophetic psalm you're going to find. I'm not going to read it all. But it goes out, and here's a couple of key parts of it. And it's, it's, okay. Roaring lions tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within me. My strength is, tie, is dried up like a potsherd, like dried clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. That happens in crucifixion. As the, as the moisture evaporates and the tongue goes up so much that they tried to give him something to drink at one point in time. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. That's crucifixion. I can count all my bones. Usually they break the bones in crucifixion to cause them to die faster. But when they came, Jesus had already surrendered his spirit. So he was not, had a bone broken. I can count all my bones unbroken. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That's what the soldiers did at the feet of the cross. Goes on and says, and then, and then, and then David, who's writing this, gets upbeat. He starts with his despair, but this, the psalm ends in victory. It ends in acclamation of joy. And at one point it says, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Jesus knows the Bible. He knows it when he's quoting this one passage, all the rest that's coming through in Psalm 22. This is really good stuff, guys. You really should be much more excited than you are. Okay? It goes on, though, and, and it concludes, this psalm concludes this way. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. In the last verse, they'll proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That's you and me. For he has done it. He's achieved salvation. That's Jesus quoting that at the moment of his death. But if you don't know scripture, you're confused. You don't understand what's being taken place. You don't grasp it. Jesus believed in the Bible. He quoted the Old Testament. He used scripture in conflicts with Satan. He used scripture to give context and understanding not only to his mission and, and, and what he was about, but to encourage John and to give him direction and guidance. He finishes off his last words, our scripture. But there's more. Okay? Isaiah chapter 61. The passage he starts his whole ministry off with. 
it's very, very weird how he does this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord's on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to bulk up to the brokenhearted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's not the end of the passage. He doesn't complete the passage. It would have been very weird. All the people that have heard this, it would have really shocked or, or hung them up. It's like, it's like someone saying, you know, uh, a penny saved is... Is, 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 tell us. A penny saved is a penny earned. Don't stop. Give us the whole thing. It makes no sense. He stops at, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Why? Because the completion of the thought completion of the passages and the day of vengeance of our God. There's a time of judgment coming when we'll be judged for what we do, what we think, and what we believe and what we hold as values. But thank God that judgment is off a ways yet. Jesus doesn't reference that. He says he's here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and that year has continued on from the time of his ministry until now. We live in an age and a time of incredible grace. Judgment is coming. It has to complete. But we live now in the time of grace and God's forgiveness. There has been an erosion of values. I look at my tree and and I feel sad for it because I, I think there'll be a time, and I hope it's not in my lifetime, that there'll be a time when that tree will eventually, you know, fall over and die. Now, I hope not. Its roots are so deep, I'm told. It taps so deep into things that maybe not. And from that tree, I have contemplated mortality and life. I have seen, seen things of incredible beauty. I have prayed and studied scripture, and so for me, it has meaning. But one day, that tree will fall. But the word of God, the scripture, will never fall. It doesn't matter what erodes in our culture or within our own mind and heart and spirit. The truth of God marches on. And you want to talk about the tide of history and being on the right side of history? If you're not standing for biblical values... If you're not soaked in scripture and letting that be that which directs and guides your thought, then trust me, you're not only on the wrong side of, of history, you're on the wrong side of eternity. But for those that will embrace that with humility and brokenness, recognizing first our own sin, our own shortcomings, our own need for salvation and grace, that we live in this time of God's favor and we've seized hold of that to, to confess our sin, to accept the sacrifice of Christ on that cross, then we want to know more about Scripture. We want to know more about this God who saves, who grants grace while still being a just and holy God. The Jesus trait was not just a valuing of Scripture but using it for almost every possible situation and applying it as, as reflex. I don't care if it gets down to 1% that are Bible-believing. 
I want to be in that 1%. There are times I sit in that tree and sometimes there's crowds in the daytime. Not often, but there's crowds. They have no clue I'm up there. I'm up so high half the time. Sometimes they walk by and they're a little freaked out. And it's the same thing for those of us that hold a biblical truth. There's times the crowds go by, they don't pay attention. Sometimes they come by and they want to burn the tree down. And if we react in reflexes, we want to angrily address that. But if we look into Scripture and look into the heart of God, then we realize even them we need to love because even our Savior said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, we come before you tonight, today, as just a people. We look at the erosion of culture and all that's around. We, we can confess that sometimes it's the erosion of our own heart and soul and thinking. We've climbed down out of the tree. We've climbed out of your place of faith and, and scripture, and we've, 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 we've sunk in the sand, blown away by the wind, tossed into the ocean of confusion. I pray, Lord, that there'd be those in this gathering today that would choose to stay rooted in you, that would choose to maintain and hold to a biblical view regardless of the cost of that view, knowing that it's reality, it is truth. Guide us, I pray, into an understanding of things to realize that this was something that was so central to your own son as he walked this earth. And help us as we do this to understand, Jesus, really who you are and what you mean to each of us because you made it clear you weren't just a teacher, you weren't just a really good guy, you weren't a miracle worker, that you were and are God in the flesh. Before I leave here today, there's one final thing I'll mention. I didn't mention this in first service, but um, really two things. One is we've been doing some strategic processing and one of the things we've come to realize is that parents, you guys, especially with teenagers and children, you guys have such a massively difficult job. Your, your young people are being so deeply propagandized and, and overwhelmed by, by issues. And so in this next year of time, in the fall, we want to begin a series for the year of, uh, not on a Sunday, but on a separate issue, of just equipping parents and encouraging you. And so I say that, but here's what, what prompted me on that right now is this. I encourage you as parents, not only that you are rooted in the scripture, but that you draw your family into that. This is my tree, okay? But it's actually our entire family has been very much a part of that. And every time we're there, they, they, we gather in that. We, we climb in there. We're part of that. It's, it's, it's become part of us as a people and as a family. And I would encourage your parents, don't just have a biblical worldview and a stance, but invite the rest of your family, especially your children, to be a part of that and to understand that. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that we still live in this time of grace. I appreciate that you're a holy God and a just God and that the judgment will come at some point. But we live in this time of grace and I pray, Lord, that we seize hold of that and that we use it, Lord, to deepen our understanding of you, that we have our understanding of eternity. So God, shape us in these things. Guide us in this conversation over these next two weeks as we continue to unravel just these two other traits that were central to who you were as you walked this earth. I thank you. And we praise and we honor you above and before anything. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. The church said, amen. Amen. Amen.